This is episode 263 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Book Bans and the Pen America Lawsuit. Hello everyone, welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Thank you for joining us and tune in on Mondays for new episodes. Delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Casey Meehan is with us. And Casey is from Pen America to join us today to talk about book banning and book bans and some legal issues around that as well. So welcome to the show, Casey. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. Casey is the Freedom to Read Program Director at Pen America, leading our initiatives to protect the right of students to freely access literature in schools. And previously, Casey served as the Associate Director of Post-Secondary Policy at a mission-driven education research organization in Philadelphia, which is called Research for Action. Casey's research centers students, educators, and school leaders' experiences in identifying strategies for reform and capturing emerging best practices and strives to connect research to policy and program change. Casey holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and an MPA from the Fells Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, along with a certificate in politics. All right, Casey, let's jump right in. My first question is a humdinger. Can you bring us up to speed with what is happening with book banning? What form is it taking? And what does it mean when somebody says this book has been banned? Is the government banning the book, a school board, a PTA group? What is this whole thing all about? Right. Let's let's we can jump right to the meat of it. Um, and I will do my best to succinctly answer this question. And then there's more resources that I'll share with you that we could post for your listeners that can go a bit deeper. But Pen America has tracked for the last now two and a half years um, an undeniable and unprecedented attack on free expression in public education. Um, And what we have been able to record is a mounting crisis of book bans. Um, So from July 2021 through June 2023, which is where our most recent data update takes us, but then we sort of have anecdotal evidence, you know, from June to today. But in that period, 2021 to 2023, over two school years, we have recorded you know, almost 6,000 instances of book bans occurring across 41 states and 247 school districts. So it's just an immense mounting crisis, as I shared. And we record a book ban a few ways. So when we say a book has been banned, at its essence, the simplest definition is that a book has been removed from access. So a book that was previously available to a student is no longer available. And this may mean that a book has been removed for a prolonged period of time while it undergoes a review. And then potentially that book may make its way back. But we've seen these review processes take months, even years. So this is a really long time that students are lacking access to that particular book. This could also be an instance where a book that was previously available for elementary school students has been moved to a restricted you know, high school only library. So where a book had previously been accessible to, you know, your seventh and eighth graders, now that book is only available to high school students. Um, So we also count that as a book ban. 
And then there are also instances where books have just been like full stop removed from the district, from any classroom or library shelf across the school district. Books are being decidedly removed from access and not brought back under any means. And so just to clarify, because this was sort of an aha for me yesterday, if I have this right, when we describe a book as being banned, what that means is the book had already gone through a vetting process with a librarian or a teacher, and they had determined that the book was appropriate for that age level, that library, that school library. But now there's an intervening force that comes in after that process and says, no, 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 you're wrong. This book isn't appropriate for this space. Is that right, Casey? That's really well said. That's exactly right. And which often, you know, we point to, like, I am not a trained librarian. You know, I've been a college adjunct educator, but I'm not a, you know, a trained like K-12 educator either. So there are, but these are, these are folks that are professionally trained and books come in through, you know, like real thoughtful selection processes. It's, it's unlikely that a book is just kind of appearing on the shelf without somebody, you know, vetting that book and making the decision that this book is developmentally appropriate or interesting to students or reinforces, you know, this year's like history curricula. So there's lots of ways that books come onto shelves, but you're absolutely right that professionally trained educators and librarians have already, you know, sort of made those decisions and are best positioned to adjudicate what what is, you know, coming onto shelves. And that there are other pressures being applied that are taking the books off shelves outside of kind of that selection process from educators and librarians. And then when we say the book has been banned, again, who is doing the banning? Yeah, our research points to two like primary pressures behind book bans. Um, the one of the first is kind of like local, very localized pressures. So these could be it could be a parent of a student in the district. It could be a community resident. Um, it could be somebody who's affiliated with a group that has been you know mobilizing nationwide to see certain books removed from classroom shelves. That pressure, that very like local group or individual pressure, plays out by having you know, one individual challenging a book or what we see more commonly is challenging tens to twenties to hundreds of books at a given school district for removal. Um, so that's one place where we see book bans, you know, kind of originating from. They're initiating from a, a challenge of on a specific book being sent to the district from an individual actor or somebody who's affiliated with a group. And those groups are groups that many of us are now, you know, familiar with, you know, Moms for Liberty is an example of one of these groups, um, no left turn and no left turn for education is another. Um, Citizens defending freedom is another group. So there's lots of groups with similar with you know different titles and different names. Um, but ultimately, you know, they kind of have like an organized infrastructure to to have their members um, or individuals affiliated with these groups go and challenge books at a nearby school district. So that's one big pressure. And then increasingly, we've been tracking the role that legislation is having in, in book bans. So that's our second pressure that we point to. Um, there are several states that have now enacted pieces of legislation that are influencing, you know, or kind of pressuring decision makers at the school, at the school district level to be removing books. Often we're seeing books removed kind of like out of fear that they may not be under compliance with a given piece of legislation. You know, in other places, there's really there is explicit language in legislation that is, you know, sort of barring materials that 
discuss um, sexual orientation and gender identity. So then we see the way in which books are books that include, you know, representations of LGBTQ plus individuals are increasingly pulled from shelves under these pieces of legislation. So pressures both kind of at the you know state level from legislation, but also a very localized individual or group effort. And often you can imagine like there are states where these two forces converge, where we have legislation and then we also have localized pressures. And that's kind of like, you know, where we see these like real surging instances of book bans. Okay. I think what's interesting also, and you've alluded to this, uh, but give us a sense of this if you can in some numbers, is just such a dramatic change since 2020, 2021. And actually, I think in one of your reports, you mentioned this is really unfortunate. It comes right after the pandemic lockdown when students already were suffering from, I guess I would call it a lack of education access during that time. Um, so can you yeah, give us some idea of how this has amped up really since the pandemic? There's a librarian who has kind of been at the forefront of pushing back against book bans, um, Martha Hickson, and she is a 16 plus year librarian. And she always like she can point to and I've heard her in a few places like point to the day she got her first challenge in 2021. Um, so you can imagine there are many librarians and many schools that never saw a book challenge mm. or maybe had these like one off cases where you know, a parent would catch their student reading something that that parent, you know, maybe wasn't comfortable with and then would bring that challenge forward and have, you know, conversations, but it would kind of just be over this one book. Um, you know, what we are seeing just in terms of scale and magnitude really does come on the heels of the pandemic, absolutely, and really kicks off in 2021. And, you know, I think they're related. Like, I think when there was, I think public schools were really strained during the pandemic and, you know, efforts and, you know, tension points around whether to mask or whether to close, you know, a lot of the individuals that had kind of like strong reactions to the pandemic have also showed up, shown up in the book banning movement as well. Um, so it definitely kind of has grown out of, you know, a lot of pressure, um, a lot of mistrust and a lot of, um, I don't know, frustration, I guess, over like public school institutions that's continuing to manifest itself from the pandemic now in threats against students' free expression. So book banning being one, but we also have been tracking, you know, other ways that free expression and just kind of like the operations of public school systems have been really, you know, strained and tested over the last few years. It's really interesting. I was thinking as you were talking, you know, people seem so irritated and frustrated, right? There's sort of a lot of lashing out about various things, you know, politics or driving or, you know, just I see it in my neighborhood, people just irritated and just lashing out. It's so interesting, though, that those general malaise manifests itself sometimes in something so specific as this particular book in this particular library, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how the, yeah, sort of becomes laser focused on one thing that maybe doesn't merit such an outcry, but it's a symptom of this general aggravation. Yeah, it's kind of funny. That's exactly right. I mean, I think book bands have become you know, I often like point to book bands as like they're bellwether, right? But mm -hmm. there's something that's like so tangible that we can all understand like what it means to remove access to a book. And we, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people also, you know, I guess on different, you know, different ends of it, but we can all like 
remember reading books and wanting to access books and going to book fairs in, in elementary school and high school. So the idea that, you know, these things that we all had and all did are now being like questioned and challenged. I think it, I don't know, there's something like both bellwether and sensational and absurd rolled into one. <laughs> <laughs> Our modern life, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like yeah. Zero we're living in. And then um, again, big picture question for you. Uh, what kinds of books have been banned historically and what kinds of books are being banned now? Uh, do you have some specific examples? Yeah, actually, I'm, maybe I'll share this with you and we could find somewhere to post it online. But Pen America actually has like a, I don't know, an interesting, I don't know if the, what the right word is, but an interesting blog that looks at kind of the history of literary censorship. And in that blog, you know, we go back to 1601, where Shakespeare's works were censored and suppressed all the way to 1637, which would be like the first kind of American book banning case of Thomas Morton's The New English Canon. That you'll often hear folks who are in the book banning space, like as old as America, right? Like we have always had instances of book banning. There have always been, you know, efforts to suppress and to censor certain types of literature, certain types of content, certain identities in our stories, certain histories. It's true to our history of the United States. We have you know, even in kind of like more recent history, I mean, Judy Bloom is is an author whose works are contemporarily banned. So they've been banned over the last few years. And when you hear Judy Bloom talk, you know, she'll remind you that her books were challenged in the 70s and the 80s, you know, forever being kind of like the first young adult novel to really talk about sex in a way that was, you know, kind of like from the female experience, like that, that book itself received a lot of, you know, challenges and was certainly banned, you know, before. And then of course we've seen it banned now. So anyway, of course, like the U S has a, a, a long history of, um, book, book bans and book banning. And in some ways they're the same and in some ways they're different. Um, I think what we're seeing now are again books that there's challenges and bans against books that represent characters of color so that we can acknowledge that from other parts of our history as well so books that include BIPOC characters or are written by authors of color are overwhelmingly banned and censored um, we are also our research points to how books with LGBTQ plus characters or books that are written by LGBTQ plus authors are overwhelmingly banned and censored. You know, increasingly we see books that talk about sex in any way. So it could be sexuality, it could be sex, sex experiences. We're increasingly seeing the way in which books that talk about sexual assault and, and violence against individuals, violence against women, um, sexual violence against women are, are banned as well. So now two and a half years, we're seeing kind of a broadening of what is, you know, in fact being targeted, but certainly the undercurrents of this are, you know, suppression of LGBTQ plus stories, suppression of um, stories that represent characters of color and individuals of color, um, and then any bans on books that talk about sex and sexual violence. Well, one of the things I really like about PEN America is your focus on data. And mm -hmm. often your reports are just inc just incredible treasure troves of uh, statistics and data. So the one that was released about the school year 2022 and 2023, in that one, PEN America reported that over 800 books had been banned. 30% were about race, 26% LGBTQ plus topics. But there are a lot more, and you alluded to that, 
It's interesting to me that a lot of the rest of them seem to be about violence. Now, would you characterize this violence in any particular way, or is it just gross violence, or, or is there some theme that's running through those? We actually have a great report called Spineless Shelves that looks at the two years of the book banning movement and also can puts a little bit of a you know, has one visual graphic that shows the way in which the subjects, the content of the books have shifted from year to year. So where this movement first started, you know, with really targeted attacks on books by and about characters of color or authors of color, books about racism and race, books about LGBTQ plus characters. In the second year of this movement, you know, we can, in some ways, we assume that many of the, those books are still off shelves, right? They can't actually be banned anymore because they've been removed. So they unfortunately don't show up as like continued trends. But what we see in the second year of this movement is you're right, like this increase in challenging books that include themes or instances of violence um, and also include health and well-being. And again, this is in sexual experiences. So those three kind of show up in year two differently. I think when we look at kind of that year two expansion, it's almost like we, you know, internally, the team at Penn characterizes it as like things that just make people uncomfortable. Mm. Like it's hard to even, you know, what is it about violence? Like, you know, name a book that doesn't have either like violence, sex, you know, some sort of romance. And, you know, I don't know, there aren't that many pieces of literature or even we have another category of themes of grief and death. I mean, that's like, these are kind of like anchored content areas in, in much of literature mm -hmm. because it explains the human experience. And that's what makes books so compelling is that they show us things and remind us of things and, you know, connect us with things. So yeah, so we always, you know, we kind of say these are these are just content areas that make people uncomfortable. In terms of violence specifically, a big chunk of violence is sexual abuse and sexual violence, which is also interesting to me that there's such a, you know, there's like this real discomfort about having access to that, those stories, and many of which you can imagine are, you know, memoirs or, you know, stories of certain of like specific people who have gone through, you know, their own kind of sexual assault and abuse. So that's a big part of the violence category. Yeah. And I think another thing to remember, at least when I uh, start thinking a little bit more carefully about this topic is when we decide as a parent that we're going to take an action to try and have a book removed from a school library, for example. What we're saying is not, I don't want my child reading this, right? Because as a parent, we're likely pretty much in control of that. Or really, if we can't control the kid from getting it from the school library, we're not going to be able to keep the kid from getting it from Amazon or the public library, right? But instead, what's really, I mean, trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who has this concern is, I don't want this book to be accessed by any child. And to me, that's a big difference, right? I mean, it's sort of moving you from a position of a parent concerned about your own kid to being a monitor of ideas. And it's not a very well formulated question, but I, I wonder if you, as you have thought about this so much more carefully than I have, like, what is that? What what does that mean to do that? Yeah, what is that? I like that yeah. question. We see this all the time. And often people who are making this argument about like, you know, my parental rights, like, you know, I need to be making decisions for my children. Like it, it is, it gets slippy as soon as it's like, well, what about everybody else's children? And what about my parental rights? And, you know, what if our parental rights are at odds with each other? Then like, who gets to 
mm-hmm. you know, what makes you more of the authority to decide than than myself as another parent. So, you know, I think that's exactly right, that these are, that this movement to ban books is not about, you know, individual parents making decisions for their, for their kids, um, but this is about individuals and groups making decisions that affect all students. Um, and I think, you know, more so too, what's happening is it's really putting a chilled environment over the entire school system. So we are watching how, you know, in addition to books being banned from access for students, we're hearing over and over again that purchases from to school libraries, like new book purchases are suspended. Um, librarians oh. are cautious about what books they're going to stock in the shelves, knowing that if they include, you know, a book with these, this type of representation or these themes that it'll likely be challenged and create, you know, a whole set of obstacles. You know, educators are increasingly cautious about what they're delivering in their own classroom instruction out of fear of like somebody saying that their teachings are inappropriate or harmful to students. You know, I think there's like there's a real atmosphere, you know, we call it like a chilled atmosphere that is rippling from this movement as well. So the implications are so vast that this isn't about, you know, one one parent providing safeguards for for what their students reading it's it's so much larger and it's having and its implications are really affecting the entire school system which is you know again which is like the alarming the most alarming part of this to watch i think that's right i mean it really does have a chilling effect i attended a webinar put on by pen america actually in conjunction with the uh, society for children's book writers yeah oh so yeah. great they have yeah. been such good sessions i was on a, a few of them yeah the moderator for the panel, Laurent Lynn, he'd written a book about a queer teen growing up in Texas called, I think, Draw a Line, something like that. And he said in that webinar, he wanted to address a myth that we have, that sometimes sales of a banned book will rise after it's been right. banned. And sometimes there's sort of a, oh, this is good for the book. And Laurent was explaining, it really is not and that he could directly see the impact on the sales of his book, probably from other libraries, I'm guessing, that decided then not to stock his book because it had been banned. And also, I think this idea of chill is really a great word, but it extends all the way down to authors too, writers who are, in some cases, really quite motivated to sell their book. And they might decide to just alter their book a little bit so it just doesn't, you know, raise that problem, raise that question, even in an editor's mind at a publisher. So this idea of chill, I think it's really effective. Actually, I think this is one of the scarier things is just the sort of overriding sanitization of things that are available to us. I don't know if there's a way ever to try and measure that, but anecdotally, I feel as though I can see the effects of this. Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many good and valid points. I mean, the one thing that we also call out in our most recent report is that once an author is banned in one place, it's almost like a copycat or like a scarlet letter effect to draw on our literary background, mm-hmm. right? That they kind of, you know, these authors are being branded and then other districts are seeing these lists of books that are banned in one school district in Texas and now a district in Missouri is is removing the same set of books because, right, there's this fear that, that these books are including something and that these books are going to get challenged and these books are going to cost time and effort and energy on a school district. So that's absolutely right. Like the way in which kind of these lists are shared 
district to district, state to state that have very, you know, that have the same authors. And then that just means an author's work is being banned, you know, in multiple districts. Um, and that is real revenue for authors. And, you know, in addition to like many authors, particularly kid-lit authors, um, uh, maintain, you know, kind of some of their income through visits to schools, school visits. And that's another area that has really been chilled by this movement. I mean, we have um, authors have shared that they've been asked to not talk about a certain book when their author visit, because that book includes a queer character or to not talk about another book because they discuss, you know, segregation and racism in that book. Like, again, it's just this atmosphere where folks are overly cautious, increasingly intimidated and fearful Um, But ultimately, you know, the effects of that is a real suppression of speech. Yeah. So I want to go into that a little bit more. This is an area that's particularly interesting to me and some and work that PEN America, thank God for PEN America, really is such a good resource for me to go back and remind myself, okay, what kind of country are we? Why, why are we interested in freedom of expression in this country and so forth? So let's take a couple examples so that we can yeah, explain this. When we're thinking about freedom of expression, uh, let's take an example. Okay, so let's start with Laurent's book, Draw the Line. Um, It's a YA novel about a gay teen who's growing up in a small town in Texas, and it's been banned. And as you say, once it's banned in one place, then other areas just look at the list and say, okay, yeah, we're gonna ban all those also. And again, a lot of times this is done without actually reading the book. They're just pulling lists from someplace else. Okay, so with Laurent's book, and it's been banned, from a freedom of expression standpoint in the United States, why is that bad? Pan America has been kind of like a unique voice in this moment because we do have a principled position on free expression. So, you know, our principles in the United States also anchor back to First Amendment case law. And we, you know, there's there's precedent in the United States that school library books are protected, that they have um, special protections and that the removal of books from school libraries based on narrow ideological grounds, you know, is unconstitutional or undemocratic. So in a case like Draw Your Line, where we can, I'm going to throw some assumptions out here, but presumably though the book is being challenged because of its LGBTQ plus representation, a decision to remove that book would be driven through a very narrow ideological viewpoint um, that runs counter to principles of free expression and and um, our First Amendment rights that we have in in the United States. Um, so that you know, I think that is at the, perhaps the highest level. You know, I could give you a, a many reasons why it's harmful in terms of you know what that means in terms of students in schools who are looking for a resource that is representative. Um, what it means for students who need to be exposed to books that introduce them to somebody who has a different lived experience. I mean, there's all that you know, more developmental and empathetic uh, value of a book like Draw the Line too. So to remove that, you know, also limits, you know, students' access to a diverse, to diversity and to understanding, you know, our pluralistic society and all the different identities and histories and lived experiences that exist. Yeah. And I think that argument really resonates with people, right? It's like, you know, children who are having those kinds of experiences personally, it could be very helpful to them to read a book like that and identify with somebody else's experiences. Okay, but that's not 
the whole story with freedom of expression, right? It's not always about empathy and and caring for a right. young person who's struggling to find themselves uh, in some small town in Texas. So let's take another one. So let's pick a book that you and I would probably find pretty offensive. Suppose that uh, there's a book out there that proposes quite seriously some race-based uh, ideologies like segregation or eugenics. Um, yeah, pick something that you and I would find pretty offensive. And then some right-minded people decide that that book should not be available. That's a dangerous book and we want to get rid of it. And we want to protect our children from that kind of wrong thinking. Okay, why is that bad? I imagine probably many people and viewers would be you know, repulsed and put off by this type of content. But again, you know, I think when we when we argue for for free expression, we do argue for a very principled approach. And in some ways, maintaining that principled approach helps demonstrate that this is a universal principle that we are looking um, to ensure that all individuals have access to what you know, PEN America will often use the term a global marketplace of ideas and the free exchange of opinions um, and viewpoints. And would I disagree with this book and its opinions and viewpoints and likely, you know, could probably find a lot of factual inaccuracies, like absolutely. But in terms of its access into a, a global marketplace, it's not like our principle is that folks should have access um, to this book let's say hypothetically this book finds its way into a school library or something like that, there must be ways to talk about and to approach, you know, difficult viewpoints that run counter to how we currently see and feel the world. This is true with many, you know, kind of literature that is a bit more, um, you know, was written in the past mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and now has, you know, when we look at it from a contemporary viewpoint, like appalling, right? <laughs> but I think, what can it teach us? Again, in addition to like Penn maintaining this principled stance on marketplace, on ensuring access to a marketplace of ideas and this free exchange of information and opinions and stories, um, it goes on both sides. That our answer is not ban and to remove ideas that are harmful. Um, we can't suppress ideas necessarily that are hateful, even though, you know, sometimes at my core, I would like to. <laughs> um, but the answer is not to, you know, is not to silence, um, but is to, you know, expose and engage mm -hmm. and to question and to um, have, you know, challenging discourse um, around what's being presented. So, again, I think it's where Penn can be unique here is really maintaining that principled stance. I return to Penn America over and over to remind myself about, yeah, those types of things, because it's easy to get confused, I think, you know, as you start thinking about the suppression of ideas. But you make such a great point there, Casey, is that you know, a lot of these books are actually exposing our history. And when you start trying to suppress history, that sort of intuitively is easy for me to realize the danger in that. If you acknowledge what has been written before, or even what was part of the public discourse before, we realize both how far we've come and also how some of these issues still persist. But trying to remove that information is not helpful to an understanding. So I, I think this point that you make about history is, is very important.
the whole thing about you're destined to repeat history if you don't study it. Right. And it maintains true. And it feels, you know, at least for me in this role, like that feels ever more present. Like we, you know, we are watching the way in which history is being suppressed in this current effort to ban books. We're seeing, you know, books on Ruby Bridges that are being challenged. Um, we're watching books on Harvey Milk, books that talk about Harvey Milk as our the first openly gay politician in California being challenged and banned. Like these are histories that are within the stories of this current movement. And you can imagine, you know, as you kind of like, as you argue across a principled approach too, that it's it's slippy. Like if you if you're comfortable suppressing you know, some, but want to take a strong stand on others, you can see how maybe that would be held against. And then it's sort of just everybody, you know, can begin to suppress and um, silence. And it's kind of, you know, like of the moment, what's what is right or wrong? You know, there's mm-hmm. there's somebody who is, you know, gets to adjudicate on that. I agree. I think that's that's where we have, you know, it's a slippy slope. Instead, how can we you know, expose and revisit history and our, you know, parts of our history are heinous and awful. And um, there's language that's no longer appropriate today, um, was not appropriate then, but what can we, what can we glean from it? What can we learn? I think PEN America's, I think our mission just aligns to the answer is never to silence, but, but again, to have a real civic discourse where within the marketplace of ideas, you know, how can we grow and evolve and, kind of progress our thinking forward. Yeah, I remember I did a series on uh, journalism and the First Amendment and so forth a couple of years ago. And I remember asking one of the uh, journalism professors about, well, how do you respond to, you know, bad speech, right? Speech we don't like. And he said, well, you know, the answer always is more speech, <laughs> which I, I thought was such a it's true such a nice mantra right (laughs) (laughs) more speech more speech (laughs) yeah i think we see that a lot in the publishing industry too right like when there's you know critiques of you know books that are talking about you know like well let's just use the example of like harper lee right like oh you know when you have white individuals talking about experiences of the historic experiences of black individuals in black communities like how can we it's not necessarily to remove the book, but like, how do we open up the opportunities for different voices to tell their own lived experiences? Like, how do we expand this marketplace to ensure that there's appropriate representation and that you know people can offer can offer works that are reflected in the author's lived experiences as well as you know having authors that are talking about experiences that may not be their own lived experience. But how do we offer you know more and more and more of these opportunities? Um, and presumably you can imagine like the books that really, the books that are strong will rise above and they'll be just, again, I guess there's a, there's a little bit of a capitalist draw here with this like marketplace idea, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly I think that that's definitely part of it. It's like, how do we just increase access for more individuals to be able to tell their stories, more individuals to contribute and more speech. Which again, you make a good point. You know, if there's a some book that's written, some obscure book that's written that somebody might find objectionable, that's actually not the book that gets banned. The book that gets banned is the one that draws some attention and, you know, probably means that it has some widespread appeal, right? So yeah, it's oh sort of- Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> yeah. well, we're always, sometimes we'll look at the list of banned books. I mean, there are so many that are blockbusters, which to me, 
I'm like, I don't, sometimes I don't even know how to make sense of that either. You know, mm-hmm. like you have, um, you know, one of the, when the movement first started, um, the hate you give was a predominantly challenged book. And, you know, that book is an, it, the book's incredible. It's so contemporary and of time. And also it was like a blockbuster hit that many people, you know, can stream on their TVs. Um, so the idea that like that, you know, a, that book by Angie Thomas needs to be banned and censored. It's, it, you know, it, it's sometimes even these like blockbuster moments that you're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to read the book before you see the movie. Why would we be, you know, removing access to the book here? And again, the irony, right, that you can access the series with no problem at all. It's just, if you did want, if you were that interested student who wanted to go read the book behind the series, oops, not in your school library. Yeah, there's something weird about that. I want to talk first about this issue of adjudication. And then, Mm -hmm. as my dad would always say, well, who decides? And there's language that uh, these uh, this movement uses people who are involved in this. They uh, call books harmful or explicit or even uh, pornography. So can you explain who decides what, whether these books are pornographic or harmful or explicit? Yeah, that's the right question. I mean, of course, when we think about harmful and explicit, um, we've also seen terms like sexually relevant, hmm. you know, books with sexual conduct, like these are vague and highly subjective terms. And, you know, they're often not defined when there's policy or legislation that's put out around how would one categorize a book that is harmful. And, you know, I think we also recognize that when we have kind of blanket language like this, like how do we think about that across age and grade levels? Like how would we apply it you know, with recognition of author's authorial intent, like how do we think about it in terms of what's developmentally appropriate, like what's harmful or age, you know, inappropriate for a five-year-old would be very different than what is it for a 15-year-old. So like when we see these terms, you know, how, how do we interpret and apply them? And I think that's honestly, well, potentially it's intentional, right? And then I think what we have seen in terms of policy response to these terms is, again, this this extreme caution where this language is being interpreted in an air on the side of heightened caution to remove books that anyone could deem as harmful or explicit without clarity of language. You mentioned obscenity, or maybe you mentioned pornography, but obscenity and pornography, you know, those are terms that do have legal definitions, but it's quite a hard, high bar to meet those. Um, so when we see books being banned at schools, you know, by no means are they obscene or pornographic by the legal, their legal definitions or colloquial definitions. I see. There's a lot of like sort of this vague and subjective terminology and also this the use of language like pornographic, like obscenity that's being applied where books are being conflated to or mislabeled as something that they most certainly are not. Yes, that's very helpful. Thanks for that. And we're going to talk more about the legal issues here in a second. But I did want to talk a little bit about booklooks.org. So this is a website that I guess was started by a member of Moms for Liberty. And the website is a catalog of books that I guess would be considered for being banned. So the website poses as information about these books that someone could go and research and decide if they want to have their own child have access to this book, or if they want to raise uh, an objection to this book through their school district or at the uh, school board meetings and so forth. It's really interesting to look at this website. 
So the first thing that struck me when I went and looked at it was that it has a banner on it that says new additions, which looked so much like a publicity splash page for a publishing company, right? It was kind of funny. New additions, here we go, uh, is to draw you in. And that one of the books that was included yesterday on new additions was Clockwork Orange, which is a book that was published in 1962. So yeah, it's uh, interesting. The thing that I guess surprised me the most about this website was that what they've done is extract for each of the books that they catalog as being uh, something for parents to consider or school districts to consider, is they've extracted from each of these books a summary of the objectionable sections, the excerpts, and they refer to this information as slick sheets. That actually gave me kind of a chill. And if you look at the slick sheets, it truly is an excerpt of pretty much things that are sexual in the book. So yeah, that gives you a slightly different perspective on what is being considered objectionable in these books. And also this term sexual conduct, that term keeps rising. And I every time I see it, I think, are they talking about sexual content? But if you look at slick sheets, it really is anything sexual, even innuendo, right? Even things that are like subtle poetic gestures that might be interpreted as sensual in some way. It's a very different, it's it's very interesting to look at it from that perspective. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this whole thing from new additions to slick sheets. We we do keep our eyes on book looks, and when we when we mentioned earlier, we talked about how um, like lists are being shared, or like a book that's banned in one district is showing up on a banned book list in a district a state away. And book looks is one of these like online repositories that's you know providing you know the information for individual actors to go and challenge books in their own district or within, you know, a nearby district. And there are several sites that look like this and they kind of are a repository for challenge forms. And we'll see, you know, there are examples where a book will be challenged and it'll be like, you know, as if it was a physical copy that you could imagine being submitted. But it's almost as if like the book looks passage is like staple to the challenge form. It's like challenging clockwork work orange reasons why and it's just like the printout page from book looks um so there's there's a way in which this website is being used you know nationwide to demonstrate how you know to demonstrate that these books and i'm putting this in quotes are you know sexually explicit but i think what you point out is is so essential book looks is pulling excerpts of books that are passages taken way out of context or visuals from graphic novels again without context of a book you know, when we think about kind of like the legal definition of obscenity, there's a a test, a three part like Miller test that you that you go through. And if you meet the three parts of it, then it, it's possible that the material is obscene. But one of those tests is that a book has to be or anything has to be taken in its wholeness. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're examining a book for its obscenity or for its sexual explicitness or whatever, you know, kind of like a fundamental principle of that would be to review a book in its wholeness. And what Book Looks does is just, you know, kind of remove <laughs> that assessment at all, um, where they're 
are, you know, of course, there are passages taken out that when you read them alone, they are provocative. Like maybe you are like, oh, like that's, you know, that's shocking or that's interesting. Or I didn't realize that was in Clockwork Orange because as a reader, you're reading the whole book, you mm-hmm. know, from cover to cover. Like you're not focused on these like, you know, sentences that when potentially you're reading them just kind of like flow with the story. They're offering something really specific you know, within the longer passage of the book. So I think that, you know, has been part of this movement for sure. Um, they're uh, genderqueer uh, by Maya Kobabe is a graphic memoir manifesto. And there have been so many images that have just been held up to say this is porn because it's a, you know, graphic novel. It's almost like reads like a comic book. There's images that you can take out of context. But when you read the whole graphic novel, you're like, oh, what? This is not, this is not titillating me. This is not, you know, taken as a, taking as a whole, this con, this, this image is is part of a a person's story is part of their telling of a life experience. And it's just been really like harmful to see the way books have been kind of pulled apart and taken out of context in this way to, to try and label them as something other than what they are. Yeah. That is so interesting. I don't know if I can express this, but you know, this idea of literature encompassing human experience and hey, newsflash, all you listeners out there, look, sex is <laughs> part of the human experience. Yeah. I know people driving in their cars. What? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what was funny to me was about slick sheets was it's almost like the nine-year-old kid who goes into a book that you know, they're not interested in reading, but they find the sex part, right? And so they tell their their brothers and sisters, yeah, if you want the sex part, you know, it's on page, you know, 96 or whatever. Yeah. But, and that is titillation, right? That there's a reason that the kid goes to that, but that is not literature. And so, yeah, this idea of slick sheets really flies in the face of literature and why we read and what literature means to us. So yeah, it's very interesting to have this attitude of sort of pulling out excerpts and then flashing them in front of people. But new editions, you know, here's more sex conduct, I guess, is what they're uh, excerpting. And then posting that, as you say, I didn't realize that then the point was to download that and staple that to your objection, flash that in front of the authorities to see if you can get a rise out of them. So yeah, very interesting approach to how you convince someone that something is pornographic or obscene. Okay, so let's talk about the legal issues behind that. And PEN America has joined a lawsuit about banned books. So tell us about the lawsuit and who your partners are in this lawsuit, and then in general, how you chose this particular case. Yeah, so PEN America is part of, as you mentioned, um, kind of a first of its kind federal lawsuit against Escambia County um, School District. PEN America is one of um, several plaintiffs that include Penguin Random House, five authors whose works have been banned in the district, as well as parents and students of the district as well. So who joined in with the lawsuit? Oh, yes, exactly. So um, as it stands right now, it's it's Pen, Pen America, Penguin Random House, five parents. I'm losing track at the at the current mm-hmm. moment, and then um, students as well. And this is in Florida. In Florida, exactly. And then the authors include, you know, the authors and children book, il- children's book illustrator, 
um, included in the lawsuit is Sarah Brennan, adult fiction authors, David Levithan, George M. Johnson, Ashley Hope Perez, and then children's book author Kyle Lukoff. So those five authors are also serving as plaintiffs in the in the lawsuit. Okay. And so just early January, there was oral argument that was in response to a motion to dismiss the case. So we filed suit. There was a response um, from the district and the state to dismiss. And then the oral argument early in January was on whether the case would proceed or not. Um, and the district judge there issued a ruling that the case would, in fact, proceed. And then we also heard that the all plaintiffs in the case, so Penn, Pen America, Penguin Random House, the banned authors and parents all have standing to pursue claims under um, First Amendment rights. And then importantly, the, you know, the piece that stood out, I think, for many was that the judge also found that the state's argument, um, which was included in the motion to dismiss, that school districts' decisions to ban books are immune from the First Amendment. Um, the judge found that that argument has no merit. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that was a welcomed ruling and a win for Penn and Penguin Random House and authors and parents and students involved. And certainly, you know, for many that are on the uh, side of, de- you know, really defending and fighting for the freedom to read. So the defendants in this case are the school district and the state? Yeah, the Escambia County School Board is the defendant. And then I presume that the legislation in Florida, which banned discussions of gender and so forth in certain grades, is also part of this? Is that true? This alleged don't say gay uh, legislation in Florida? Since this suit has filed, Florida has then adopted legislation that took prior legislation, kind of combined it, and then extended it. Oh. The legislation in which we saw the district respond to, I should say, in removing the books okay, was the early don't say gay legislation. Okay. That has then since been pulled into a larger piece of legislation that includes earlier provisions and then extends it as well. Oh, okay. Just in terms of like legislation, the current active legislation is House Bill 1069. My understanding is that will not necessarily be addressed in this particular lawsuit, but you know, I can imagine there are many groups that are, you know, thinking about how to how to push back against the current legislation that's active. Sometimes the the legal stuff is is tricky, but mm-hmm. you know, I think what we what we're optimistic for in this case, in particular, is that you know, I think whatever what, what's what's found in this case will have vast implications in mm-hmm. how um, we think about book bans and the role in which you know, state legislation can drive the removal of books from from student access. So either way, you know, I think there will be implications um, from this case that'll ripple out. You know, it's always so interesting to me about these cases is often how the courts, like Pan America, really understand the overarching principles of these things. And they don't get confused as the rest of us do as humans about well, why? Yeah, why is that bad? Wait, I don't like this book. Yeah, I don't like that speech. Exactly. The courts often seem to be very clear. They really do seem to understand the First Amendment and, you know, what it means, of what freedom of expression truly means. So, yeah, it's always interesting to me that often as citizens, it's easy for us to get confused. But in a way, you know, thank God for the courts because they they understand these things certainly much better than I do. So tell us historically how courts have ruled on issues like this. A lot of that is 
what's behind our case. And then there are other cases currently playing out across the country against book banning. So there's similar cases in Iowa to stop, you know, a similar piece of legislation, you know, almost like a copycat bill from Florida that was adopted in Iowa. Um, There's ongoing litigation in Missouri. We're watching litigation in Texas, you know, when you can connect them from state to state, all efforts to really maintain that book bans are unconstitutional. Um, And that builds from different cases and different court systems and, you know, different states. But, you know, ultimately what the, what we have seen and where there is precedent is that particularly precedent in schools is that school libraries and library books have special protections that they are, you know, they're constitutionally protected and viewpoint discrimination that would remove a book is is unconstitutional. So, you know, that's really where our case in Escambia is really leaning into, you know, sort of that precedent that there are several examples of case law where the plaintiffs that have challenged a removal of a book from a school district because of, again, these narrow ideological viewpoints has been found unconstitutional. So we're we're optimistic that history is on our side here too. We you know, I think that's, and it, m- most people know that like we don't ban books, right? Like that's, you know, even us non-lawyers, like I can understand we just, we don't ban books. It's that's undemocratic. It's, you know, unconstitutional. So you feel as though precedence is on your side here. We sure hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I want to uh, close with a quote from Suzanne Nossel, who's the CEO of PEN America. She says, those who are bent on the suppression of stories and ideas are turning our schools into battlegrounds, compounding post-pandemic learning loss, driving teachers out of the classroom and denying the joy of reading to our kids. By depriving a rising generation of the freedom to read, these bans are eating away at the foundations of our democracy. Interesting idea that Uh, Through the courts is where we continue to establish these foundations of our democracy, including through legal action, uh, such as the one that's been taken by PEN America. Uh, So, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And before I let you go, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience, a website, call to action? This is your time. I often think about our efforts to defend the freedoms to read across and the freedoms to learn across several spheres, right? We certainly, we talked about, we're going to fight them in the courts. We have, you know, ongoing litigation, um, but there's so many other ways that folks can get involved. So we're also watching legislation being proposed on both sides of this issue. So legislation that, you know, may influence this movement and have sensorial effects, as well as legislation that's really defending the right to read and maintaining the value and the um, importance of access to, to school libraries and school library books. So for listeners, you know, contact your legislator, follow your legislative session, see what's going on. Um, And if you're not a policy person, that's cool. There's lots of other ways. I think our third strand is just around kind of like raising awareness to activate the public. So this can be something more local, like visiting your school board or your local library, um, reading a banned book and maybe, you know, sitting with it and challenging why this book would be removed and why people would find it, you know, inappropriate or harmful or obscene or insert word. So, you know, lots of different ways, supporting authors whose works have been banned, um, supporting students who are out there, kind of frontline defenders of the right to read. Um, And so for more information, you can always visit PEN America's website. We have an action page for our, you know, our opposition to book bans and different calls to action. And you could find that at www.pen.org slash action, A-C-T-I-O-N. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me on today too. 
Oh, it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to explore such complicated topics with us. You did a marvelous job and thank you for the work that you do. And thanks to PEN America also. So yeah, thanks so much yeah. for joining us. Of course. And thank you for elevating. I mean, it is, I don't want to overstate or understate, but you know, a lot of people are, are really feeling this and, and seeing the way in which is kind of like an issue of today to really be a part of and to stand up for and that history never looks kindly on those that ban books. So I think we could all mobilize together to oppose, you know, further banning of books here. Thanks again. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. Our goal in 2024 is to expand our audience because we get such great guests. So we'd love your help in spreading the word by sharing, subscribing, liking, thumbs upping, rating, and commenting. Got all that? Really, thanks for any support. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guy, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Also, a shout out to Podomatic, our podcast hosting platform. You podcasters out there might want to check them out. They've been good to us. And finally, thanks to Quincas Morera for the theme music.